Okay, um, before I start, um, just a couple of things. One, I just want to really recommend that advanced day that Danny talked about. Um, I had the um, opportunity to spend uh, a little bit of time with a couple of the churches in the UK, which are part of the advanced family. Um, there's a church in Red Hill in Surrey and uh, another church in Newcastle, which um, Randy's from um, as well. And, um, and they're just really fantastic guys. Just re- I've really enjoyed spending time with, with both groups. And um, I just really recommend that day to you. I think I've personally really grown from um, hearing some of the people from Advanced teach. And so, yeah, I just think it would be a great time. Um, the other thing I wanted to flag to you, um, and I'll probably mention this at the end, but in case I forget, um, this is SALT. Most of you know this is a publication that we produce every week. We give it out at Waterloo Station between about quarter past eight and uh, nine o'clock every Friday morning. We also put it online on, on Facebook and um, we just uh, people subscribe to it and get, and get it in their email inboxes each Friday. And um, this is our way of engaging with, with Londoners, of, of taking something of the gospel message and engaging, it, um, engaging with thoughtful Londoners. And so um, it's, it's going really well. We've been doing this for a few months. We've seen some people email in um, who, haven't, who didn't know, who just kind of responding to what we're saying. And even this Friday, I had a number of people come up and just say, yeah, really enjoy getting it. And Probably most of those or some of those were Christians, but it's really encouraging to see people respond so well to it. And um, also I found personally, this is a really effective um, tool to use when I'm engaging my friends and my family um, around the gospel. And this is something that I've, I've had a bit of dialogue with, with them about using, these, using different articles from SALT. Um, so the reason I'm saying that is because um, we do have a bit of a team. We have a team who write it together and um, Naomi uh, leads our kind of editorial team and um, and we also have a distribution team, a team of people who go out each Friday morning and, uh, and give it out. And basically, um, we'd love for people to join those teams, for people to write with us, and also um, for people to join us in distributing it. So next Sunday, after church, um, anyone who wants to be involved, either in giving it out on Friday morning, or I will do a little bit of training around how you can use this a bit more in your personal life, engaging your friends, using um, salt, and, um, and talk, having spiritual conversations. So if you'd like to join us, um, we'll come back to ours, not for a roast, unfortunately, but for a chicken casserole. Um, at ours after church next Sunday. Um, so anyone who wants to be involved, who's in the salt distribution team, who gives out with us on Friday morning, would like to join us, or would like to think about using salt in their everyday life. Um, and, and the writers will be there as well. So yeah, um, please do join us for that after church next Sunday. Okay, um, so today we're looking at the second part, um, looking at the book of Acts, and the second part of a two-part series. Um, Acts is the account of the explosion, of the, the growth of God's movement his church. And so to truly understand um, that movement, his church, and the explosion that we see in the book of Acts, we need to go back to the source of this movement, Jesus himself. So if we rewind just a little bit to the Gospels, um, maybe you're not familiar with Christianity today, so I'll just give you a brief overview. Basically, we see Jesus um, going around Israel, uh, teaching and preaching, healing the sick and raising the dead. So as he, as he puts his hand on people, people and prays for them, they're, they're, um, they're, they're made well, the sick become well, and people who are dead literally come back to life. So as a result of this quite incredible um, ministry, a crowd starts to follow him and uh, are intrigued at the power in his hands and, and some of the things that he's teaching and with the authority that he teaches with. Um, alongside that, a, a smaller group of people um, come to believe, come to understand that he, this is not, he's not just a, a good man or a religious teacher, but he's actually God in the flesh. So they come to um, obey him and worship him and, and to follow him with their whole lives. 
And these people are called the disciples, uh, followers of Jesus. And so they, uh, these guys uh, travel with him and spend time with him, and they go to the point where they um, even see him uh, crucified. They see him die on, on a cross, a, a Roman um, method of, of, uh, of death and of, of murder, killing. And, um, and then, but then, three days later, that's on the Friday, on the Sunday, they see him incredibly resurrected. And um, I just want to briefly look at the end of uh, Luke's gospel, uh, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, so if you turn to page 1,556 in your church Bibles. Um, so this is kind of like part one. It's written by the same guy who wrote Acts. And so we're just going to see the end of part one, which gives us a context for then uh, part two, which we're looking at today, or a small part of that. So um, if we first... I think it's um, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 36. It says, Jesus appears to his disciples after he's died, after he's been crucified, and but he's resurrected. That's what he says. Um, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still they, whilst they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat, here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So Jesus is, is demonstrating to them, he's reassuring them, he's actually physically resurrected. He's not just a kind of spirit or, he doesn't say this, but like a kind of figment. Of, you might think, oh, is he just a figment of the disciples' imagination? Um, he's demonstrating that he's actually resurrected and that he's conquered death. And obviously this is one of the, the reasons why those of us who are Christians believe that he is actually God. He is who he said he was because he experienced this resurrection. Um, and he goes on then, he said, Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem You are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So he gives the disciples um, some instructions. He he tells them that this death and and resurrection was already planned, was already predestined, and we'll come on to that in the passage that we're looking. But then he goes on to tell them that this... um, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So this news that um, people should turn around and follow Jesus, follow him as Lord, make him king of their lives, and that there is an offer of eternal forgiveness from God. Um, that news is to be proclaimed starting in Jerusalem, but to go to all the nations. So he gives the disciples uh, their instructions for for the rest of their lives, and and that includes us today. Um, So this is the context, this is the instructions that um, help us understand the book of Acts, um, understand what happens. So let's return to the book of Acts, and to understand um, the scale of what happens in the book of Acts, um, the the scale of this growth, the explosion of the church, um, I think we have to remember where we are at the beginning of the book of Acts. 
Jesus has given them this mission to take this news across the world, but they're just a a small group of unschooled, unsophisticated men and women. There's 11 apostles who are to lead this um, God's movement, his church, and then there's, in in addition, about another 100 and uh, just over 100, so together they make about 120 who gather together in an upper room in Jerusalem at the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, These are not men of influence. They're not people with a lot of status in the world. They're just humble, ordinary um, people like like you and and me. Um, And their leader, Jesus, has just been publicly condemned as a criminal and crucified. So um, obviously, if you're looking at this movement from an external perspective, you're not thinking that these guys are about to go and change the world. In fact, you'd be doubtful that they could do that. But by the end of the book of Acts, this small band of 120 people has transformed to thousands of believers worshipping God across the empire, people who follow Jesus in different gatherings around um, kind of from Turkey to Rome and all across the Roman Empire, despite opposition and even the threat of death for following him. Now, the story doesn't end at the beginning of the book of Acts. Actually, the story goes on. So we know from history that the next two centuries, the church continues to grow as an underground movement, despite the opposition of the Roman authorities. And you've all heard stories of Christians being killed in the lion's den um, for following Jesus. Um, So the church continues to grow. And in fact, even beyond that, today, um, the church has grown around the world, such that reportedly about two billion people would call themselves Christians. Today we're looking at a snapshot of that movement in Acts chapter 4, and we'll see two things that underlie this prolific growth, this explosion of the church. Firstly, their belief and confidence in the sovereignty of God. And the second, the impact of being filled and empowered in the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are the two things. And I think this question is relevant for us too. Um, Firstly, if you're not here and you're not a Christian today, then you have to explain why this movement grew so rapidly. From a sociological perspective, you'd want to know, well, how did this such a small group go on to transform the world, go on to transform the Roman Empire? Um, How did these people change history? You may come to the conclusion, like I do and like many of us here today, this was a movement of God. And so if it is a movement of God, then then you'll want to join it. Um, But... Also, if you're a Christian here today, then we long to see our society transformed by the love of Jesus. We long to see our friends, our families, our colleagues encounter the unconditional love of their heavenly Father and embrace and turn to follow him. Um, We long to see our city transformed. We long to see London looking totally different. Um, You know, Warren Warren prayed about it when he said that this world is is so messy and we see that brokenness all the time in the world today. We long to see Jesus' movement grow in London and to see the city transformed. Um, An author, Andrew Wilson, um, wrote about his dreams for London and he kind of gives us a picture of what would London look like if it was redeemed, if if everyone in London followed Jesus and worshipped him. And uh, and I think Andrew shared this with us about a year ago, maybe longer, but I I found it really inspiring. So this is his kind of picture of what would London look like if it, if it was redeemed. It starts with a human soul. In the redeemed London, everybody knows that they are loved by their creator. This might sound very fluffy and religious, but it's the biggest difference between the redeemed London and the regular one. This means that people in the redeemed London live without anything to prove, in complete security, 
And this has all sorts of implications that make it hard to recognize it as London, even though Tower Bridge and Big Ben and St. James's Park are still there. For a start, people on the tube make eye contact with one another and smile instead of hiding behind their newspapers because now strangers are not people to be avoided because they're all scary, but people to be celebrated because they're all happy. There are no brooding clumps of youths standing around Elephant and Castle, smoking and looking miserable, trying to find their identity in the acceptance of the group because all young people in redeemed London already know who they are and why they matter since they know and are known by God. Metro doesn't have any negative stories anymore. It's not just that people don't do bad things, it's that they don't even want to. There's no hatred in Tower Hamlets, no greed in Kensington, no jealousy in Primrose Hill, and no lust in Soho. It's as if the whole city has lost the ache in its soul, the ache people were trying to soothe with money, sex, and power. People are living satisfied, fulfilled lives, and it makes the city so beautiful, you want to weep. That vision of our city full of people who've embraced Jesus' love and forgiveness and turned to follow him is incredible. And I don't know about you, but I I get excited when I hear that. I want that. And these disciples in, in in the book of Acts saw their cities change. They saw people choosing to follow Jesus in their thousands. And so let's look at their example today and see how it was possible. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles to, uh, on page 1,599. And uh, while you do that, let me just bring you up to speed um, for anyone who wasn't here last week when Cody um, kicked us off in, the, in, the, in chapter 4. Um, in chapter 3, we see Peter and John, um, two of the apo- uh, apostles, they pray for a crippled man and see him healed. Um, unsurprisingly, the man is overjoyed. He starts leaping about and praising God in the middle of the temple. Um, you can imagine this incredible scene where everyone's coming into the temple, and they know this guy because um, he sits at the gate, of the temp- one of the gates of the temple. So they, they see him, and they see that he's crippled, and they're coming in and saying, what? They're amazed because they see this guy leaping about and praising God, uh, this man who used to be crippled. And so Peter preaches to this crowd about Jesus, calling them to turn around, to repent, and to receive his forgiveness. And many believe and trust Jesus. And so now, already now, the movement, this movement of 120 has become a movement of thousands um, of followers of Jesus as a result. In response to this, the authorities arrest Peter and John. Now remember, these are the same authorities that had, had had called for the arresting of Jesus and the ultimate crucifixion by the Roman authorities. Um, So that they're not happy because Peter and John are doing this in the name of Jesus. They can't deny the sign, the physical healing that Peter and John have done um, in the name of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus' movement to flourish. They don't want the disciples to speak or teach in Jesus' name, and they actually, they tell them not to. um, But the disciples bravely say no, and essentially they say, who should we obey, God or man? And uh, the implicit answer is they're they're choosing to obey God. In fact, I think it is the explicit answer. Um, so when asked to do this, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so we pick up the story after this encounter. The, the authorities warn them again not to speak about um, Jesus, and then, and then they release them. And so um, I'm just going to read out now verse 23 to um, 31. That's what we're looking at today. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were, ga- they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So now coming into this passage, we need to just for a moment understand the persecution and the pressure that's being put on the disciples before they pray this quite amazing prayer. The first thing is they've been arrested. They've spent a night in custody at the beginning of the, um, of the uh, passage that Kerry looked at last week. Um, now, that's a scary experience. I don't know about you, but if I'm even a little bit in trouble with the police or anything like that, and it's not something I make a habit of doing, but even if um, you know, I get pulled over or whatever, I'm really like, nervous. I always, I'm wanting to please them. So last year, we were moving to this area because we realized we wanted to come to this church, and we, um, so we wanted to live in kind of Kennington, Elephant and Castle area. So we were driving about a bit slowly around Elephant Castle. And basically, we got stopped by the police because we were driving slowly in the middle of an estate. And I, I, can't, I don't really know what they thought we were going to do, but um, maybe like a drive-by shooting or something. I'm, I'm joking. They, they, but they, they, were, um, they were really horrible, actually, about the area. They were really just judgmental, and they kind of said, oh, this is an, you don't want to move here. They were, really, they were really mean. And even though I totally disagreed with them, I didn't say anything. I was like, yeah, okay. We won't, we, won't, we won't live here. You know, I, 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 com- <laughs> I, I completely like kind of just accepted what they were saying. And I had my friend there and he was a little bit more like, you know, questioning and challenging them. And I was like, shut up. Like, <laughs> we're, we're fine. Yep, here's my driving license. You know, and, it, and that, I wasn't even in trouble. I'd actually done nothing wrong. But even the prospect of just like the police talking to me, I just completely caved into their, what was just a really wrong um, attitude. Um, and these guys have had, they've been arrested and, and spent a night in custody. Um, so if it was me, I'd, I'd have been very afraid. Um, secondly, they've been threatened. In fact, they're threatened twice, once uh, before, and then as they're leaving, they're threatened again. And it's uppermost in their minds, clearly, because in verse uh, 29, they say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. They've come back, and they, when they were released... To their friends, they reported everything that's been told to them. So they know about these threats and they're aware of them. Let's not forget, these are the authorities who urged the killing of Jesus. Who, who, um, these are not kind of empty threats. These are people who killed Jesus just a little while beforehand, exactly the same place. This is their, the center of their power base, so to speak, the temple. And um, don't forget, only in a chapter or two later, uh, we're going to hear about Stephen being stoned by these uh, same religious authorities. So um, I think it's fair to say that this is a real, this is a real threat. And um, you know, just to hear that, that level of persecution and, and rejection they're facing, uh, the, the pressure they're facing from these authorities. 
And in this, it's worth asking ourselves, how would we react if we were in this situation? I think if we're honest, many of us would shrink back. Many of us have been taught to obey authorities and to follow what they tell us to do and to be good citizens. And ironically, um, well, not ironically, but there is actually a teaching in the New Testament to obey the authorities. When they're not calling you to do things which are against um, God's will, then we are called to obey the authorities. But, but we, we, we kind of might have taken that a bit too far. We might, in the sense that we, um, we're really, really aware that we want to be good citizens and to follow what they tell us to do. So this idea of saying no doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, when we think about going against the grain in general, that, that feels difficult. Uh, we like being liked. We don't want to be awkward or weird. We like, we like fitting in, we like being normal. Um, so Peter and John's behavior in saying no and the boldness of their prayers, their willingness to continue, as we see in this passage, um, is very different to how we might respond. In fact, their disciple, uh, disciples in their prayer show um, a very different resolve than we might expect. You might expect them to ask God to kind of remove the persecution, to let, you know, to kind of let, to have freedom from this. But actually, um, they're not asking for that. They're asking to continue, to, fill them, fill them, uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to continue to speak the word with boldness um, and to be involved in, uh, in Jesus' healing um, and, and transformation work in the world. So we have to ask ourselves then, why is their response so different to ours? How are they able to respond to these threats with such boldness? And I think at the centre of their response to these threats is a confidence and a trust in the sovereignty of God. Their belief that God is in control dramatically influences their prayer and their response. And this is really interesting because Danny shared with us on Tuesday night um, in community that what we believe about God matters and has implications for our lives. And I would say what they believe about God and his ultimate sovereignty and control is the reason why they're able to pray with such boldness. So they express this confidence in God's sovereignty, their trust in him, in their prayers in a few ways. Firstly, they begin the prayer um, by describing God as sovereign Lord. Um, and this is the, the Greek word they use is despotes, which, where we literally get the English word despot, one who's absolutely in control. So right at the beginning of their prayer, they're reminding themselves of who is in control of their situation, of who's ultimately in control, not these aggressive authorities, but actually the sovereign Lord. They then go on to remind themselves and speak out to God um, the fact that he is their creator. This is the sovereign Lord, and if you need any reminding of his his power, um, he is the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And I can't help but see an implicit comparison between these authorities who might try to um, assert their will and the sovereign Lord who's responsible for all creation. Suddenly, the people who are threatening them don't seem so big in comparison to the mighty God who made everything. And thirdly, they're clear that God has predestined this all to happen. In verse 28, they apply um, the psalm Uh, which is Psalm 2, to their context, um, to their current and recent experience. And they say, actually, what Herod and Pilate did to um, to Jesus in in ultimately killing him and crucifying him, you predestined. You planned in advance that Jesus was to be crucified. 
And this truth, um, this, this truth about God's sovereignty has fantastic implications for us today as well. And I want to unpack those for us in a moment. But before I do, I want to clear up a couple of things about um, God's sovereignty, as I know it can be a bit of a difficult subject for some of us um, to understand and get our heads around. The first thing is that this uh, truth about God's sovereignty doesn't negate human responsibility. Earlier in Acts, um, in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the assembled crowd um, that Jesus was delivered up, it's verse 23 if you would want to look at it, that Jesus was delivered up according to the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter's saying, look, this happened because of God's foreknowledge and God planned this, but you, it was at your hands, the hands of the lawless men, that you crucified him. So God's predestined plan doesn't remove human responsibility. They're still responsible for what they did. Um, And so God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we down tools. We're called to play our part in God's divine purposes in the world today. So if you're revising for your exams, you don't say, well, God's sovereign over the results. I won't do any revision. Um, Actually, you say, I'll do my best. I'll work hard. But ultimately, God will work out his divine plan in the results. He's ultimately in control of how I do in this exam. And the second thing I think that's worth unpacking a little bit is many people struggle with this idea, and Shadi raised it on on Tuesday um, really graciously when he said, because they might say, how can God be in control when bad things happen? Um, This is something to wrestle with. I think when people are usually asking this question, I just think it's just really common for us to experiencing difficult things in our lives, that we all have um, difficult situations. And so my pastoral response to that person who asked that question would be, I don't know. I I think there are really difficult things that happen in our lives that we can't explain, that we can't understand God's full purposes of why that's happened. We can't can't understand why God's allowed that to happen, and um, certainly not this side of heaven. So I don't think we can always discern God's purpose in what's happened. And if someone is experiencing a real period of suffering or has gone through something like a bereavement or something like that, then actually it's really unhelpful when we try to like try and discern that with them, actually. Like in a sense, like just to say, look, I'm really sorry this has happened. I don't know. We don't have all the answers. The second thing in this is that every, every worldview, by the way, has to grapple with this question and of, of where, why do bad things happen. But the difference is the Christian worldview says we're the only ones who have a comforter in that suffering. We're the only ones who have an answer for your suffering, an, um, an answer to speak into that suffering. Um, because we know in the midst of these things that we have God who is a comforter. We have a good God who cares for us and who even promises one day that we'll put an end to sickness and suffering um, in, when we're spending eternity with him. So... Um, I think I just wanted to lay that out there because I know that sometimes we grapple with this whole question of God's sovereignty. But um, by and large, I think we look at, as we look at the implications of this, of, of this truth of God's sovereignty, I think it's just some fantastic um, pastoral implications for us as we try to follow Jesus in our lives. The first thing is, the first um, wonderful thing about this truth is that it's an antidote to our fear regarding the future. So many of us worry about the future, and I, I just think that's got to be the case. So whether we, we've got, we're suffering a period of ill health, and we're worrying, will it get worse, or, or um, how will this affect our lives in the future? Or maybe we're, we're well, and we're worried about being sick. Um, 
maybe we've, we've got a job, but we're worrying, am I going to lose my job? Or um, you know, maybe we don't have a job and we're saying, actually, am I going to find a job? Am I going to be able to provide for myself? Um, if you do, I know some of you guys are doing exams at the moment. You might be worrying, am I going to be able to pass these exams? How am I going to do in them? And this prayer, this confidence, this truth in God's sovereignty is an antidote to this because it says God is ultimately in control of the circumstances. He is in control of the outcome of our lives. And I think God wants to comfort us with this truth. In Matthew chapter 10, um, Jesus tells us his disciples to have no fear. Um, in, in this context, he's talking about of those who are persecuting him. Um, but I'll just, I'll just read out um, the verse that he, he, he says, some of the things he says. He said, are, two, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are, are of more value than sparrows. So he reminds us that God is in control of everything, even to the point where a sparrow falling to the ground, even to the smallest of events, God is in control. But he also comforts us with the truth that we are valued, that we are loved. We, we kind of take the truth of God's sovereignty and the truth that God is good, that he loves us, and that he will work these circumstances out for our good. We take those two truths together, and I think together it's a r- tremendous comfort. Um, in Romans 8.28, uh, we're given the promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And this comes together to mean that we can trust God in all circumstances. Now, to be clear, this is not saying we won't go through bad things in life. There won't be difficult things, bad things in the sense of things that we experience and say, this is not nice. But it's saying that ultimately that God is in control of the outcome and he won't allow us to experience bad things that are against his will so that, we, that his purposes can still be worked out. Um, I think uh, one application of this for me was when I got my first job in London. Um, and I wanted to share my faith, and um, I was asked to lie quite a few times as well in that first job. Um, and I want, obviously, I wanted to say no to when these people were asking me to lie. But there was always a danger when I did either of those things, when I wanted to share my faith or when I wanted to say no when senior people were asking me to lie. The danger is, well, ultimately, maybe I'll be fired. Maybe I'll be fired for, for uh, saying no to the, to the boss when he asks me to lie on a document. Or maybe I'll be fired because, you know, in some way sharing my faith offends someone or whatever. You know, that, 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 that's a possibility. But in this situation, what helped me was knowing and repeating to myself, I will stay at this company as long as you intend me to. And that, free, that, actually, that, that truth really gave me a freedom that I haven't had other times in my career, but it gave me a freedom that said, I'm just going to step out and be faithful to you, God. I'm going to you know, tell people honestly about my faith. I'm going to say no when I'm um, asked to lie um, because I know that you'll keep me here as long as you intend me to. And so if I get fired in a month, then, then you're sovereignly in control of that. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think that was a really fantastic blessing to me. Knowing the sovereignty of God really helped me um, in that time in my first job. Um, so that's the first way then. Knowing God's sovereignty helps us not to have a fear about the future. The second way is that we're helped by this truth is a fear of people. Uh, many of us worry what people think about us. Um, I, I, in my second job um, in London, I had a... I worked, 
the team that I worked for, worked part of, worked for the chief operating officer of an international American corporation that was in 200 countries and was a really, this, and this guy we worked for, the chief operating officer, he was a, a really a man of um, kind of real magnetism. You know, he was a really strong leader. I really admired him. He kind of got things done. He was a bit of an all-American hero. Um, and um, I used to revere him. I used to worry what he would say to him. I, I used to think, oh, what does he think of me? And, you know, and, and it just was such a bad thing because it, it really, it led me to make some really bad choices, like just, you know, I'd just say the stupidest things. I would, it would be the opposite of that. It was like, um, the, it had the exact opposite intention of what, you, what you'd think, um, what, what I wanted, essentially, worrying too much what this guy um, thought of me. Um, I know some of the, uh, the women were part of a reading group where you read a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Um, and I think that's the same idea, that we, that we make people big and we worry what they think. And we kind of, um, yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a problem for us. We, um, or we worry what our peers or our families or, or our bosses think of us. Um, and obviously that's a problem because we end up doing things to please them rather than to please God. I'm not saying that uh, obeying your boss isn't a good thing, but that we might be led to do the wrong thing because um, we want to please them too much. And this um, prayer runs against this feeling, against this desire in us, because it says actually far above those authorities, above all the people that we want to please, is a sovereign Lord who is much more powerful and important than they are. It's because of this lower view of people that the disciples are able to say, no, no actually, we're not, not going to listen to you. We're, gonna, we're, not gonna, we're gonna keep on speaking about Jesus. And, and then they can pray to keep on going with, um, with that boldness because actually they don't fear those authorities. They choose to fear the Lord instead of to fear people. And, um, and, you know, we don't have to fear people, actually, because in comparison to God, they can do nothing to us. Even if they kill us, which, let's be quite frank, is very unlikely in today's London. We're not, not being killed for following Jesus in any way. Um, we will still be with God for eternity. So we don't have to fear people. This truth about God's sovereignty um, frees us, releases us from this. And I think it's probably about having an eternal perspective as well. This is, I think it's really important that we get an eternal perspective in our relationships with other people. We might think, oh, I really, you know, me right now, I really have to please the, the CEO of the company that I work for. I really have to do a good job. Actually, the company that I work for one day, it won't exist. You know, it's, it's going to pass away. Companies, you know, rulers, authorities, they come and go. Actually, the sovereign Lord. He doesn't come and go. He'll, he'll be there for eternity. And so my ultimate loyalty, my, the one I'm called to fear and worship and, um, and to follow is, is the sovereign Lord. I get to be with him for eternity, whatever they do to me, whatever happens to me. Thirdly, from this prayer, we don't have to fear the failure of God's movement, of his church. Now, we live in a country which has had, by God's grace, um, a tremendous history of God's work in this country. You've seen incredible people uh, rise up and preach and thousands of people following Jesus. Um, but that has also created a real narrative of decline today. So today we hear headlines all the time about um, the decline of the church. You know, Britain's no longer a Christian country, although I'm not entirely sure how land masses can be followers of Jesus anyway, so I don't really like the term. But the fundamental thing is we hear this idea that the church is declining. And you know, we think, oh, no one's really interested in following Jesus. Um, but in this context, and in the context that the, uh, of the opposition that the disciples face, it, it's easy, therefore, to feel that the church is doomed. 
And yet this prayer says the exact opposite. It says in the face of the opposition that God is sovereign. They, 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 they remind themselves, they quote Psalm 2. And in the psalm we can see that the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain. There's a sense to which that those who are, who are opposed to God or, or you know, um, actually they're doing it in vain. Because ultimately, and I'm just going to Psalm 2 just to read a little bit more, from, uh, which is not quoted. Um, in Psalm 2, it says, as, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ultimately, God is sovereign over his church and he's actually planned for that to go to all the nations. And we're seeing that. We're seeing millions of people um, follow him across the world. So um, Jesus reigns over his church and he will not let his church crumble or die. He said it in, in the Gospels, um, my, uh, I can't remember now, the bit about uh, my, the gates of hell will not prevail against, my, against it, against the church. Um, and in fact, we've seen in times of opposition um, around the world, like in a place like China or Iran, actually the church grows in times of opposition. And so in the same way, we don't have to be fearful of the future of God's church because he will sovereignly make it grow. So in this prayer, we have an antidote to our fears, our fears of what might happen in the future because we're told that God is ultimately in control of our destinies. Secondly, our fear of other people because we're reminded that he is the sovereign Lord and he is to be revered and worshipped in fear and trembling in comparison to actually people who are much smaller than he is. And thirdly, our fear of church failure, that we can trust that Jesus is sovereign over his church and he will not let it die. He'll lead it. Um, But we still have fears. We still feel anxious. Even as I've been immersing myself in these truths as I'm preparing this sermon, I can exp- I've experienced anxiety and fears this week. Um, but I think we also see a model of what to do with those fears and anxieties in this passage. If we do experience those, we're called to bring them in prayer to our loving Father who cares for us. So often we see the opposite in our lives. You know, we're worried about something, we're anxious about something, so what should I do? I know I'll go on Facebook. I don't know where it comes from, but in me, I'll go on Facebook, I'll go on Netflix and watch some sort of box set as if that's going to alleviate the anxiety or the fears that I'm feeling. Um, maybe I'm the only one. But, the, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's actually we're given a very different model of doing it in this situation. When we're feeling these anxieties and these fears, we're called to bring them to God and remind ourselves of his truth and ask to be filled with his spirit, which um, I think that's a much better option. Um, so we've seen the disciples' faith and trust in God's sovereignty, his control, but we see another significant key to why the disciples are so bold in their prayer and why the church grows so prolifically in the book of Acts, and that's being filled with the Spirit. Um, in verse 31, so I'm just going to go back there. Um, Verse 31, they say, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see that the disciples pray to ask God to continue to help them speak the word with boldness and experience being filled with the Holy Spirit. As a result, they continue to do that, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. Um, And so praying and being filled with the Holy Spirit changes them. And I think this is actually a constant theme in the book of Acts. If if you remember, at the end of Luke, 
Jesus tells them that they will be, um, experience power. Um, they'll be clothed with power. And at the beginning of Acts, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again and again, the disciples are promised by Jesus that they will be filled by the Holy Spirit and they will experience power from that. Um, and, and again and again, we see throughout the book of Acts uh, the disciples being filled with the Spirit and then as they go to new places, for example, when Peter's with the Gentiles um, in maybe Acts chapter 10, um, Cornelius, remember those guys who, who are not, not Jewish, start to follow Jesus, um, uh, they see the Holy Spirit, um, then the, those disciples also being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, so let's then look at this briefly. What does it mean? Well, firstly, who is the Holy Spirit? In John uh, chapter 14, um, verse 15 to 30, Jesus tells the disciples that he's leaving them. But in his place is coming another helper or another counselor, the Spirit of Truth. And when it says another counselor, another helper, um, it means he's another of exactly the same kind. So the Holy Spirit perfectly represents Jesus. Essentially, the Holy Spirit is God, um, God himself, a personal God coming to live inside us, live inside believers um, by his Spirit. And um, he's not uh, a force or a kind of like a, I don't know, like a, a, a non, non, another kind of, uh, spirit of some sort, but he's actually a person. Jesus describes him as, as him, so personal spirit. We describe the Holy Spirit as him rather than, rather than it. Um, later on in, in the book of John, Jesus actually tells his disciples that it's a good thing that he's going away, so that when he goes away, the Spirit will come, which we see at the beginning of Acts um, and the, on the day of Pentecost. So we see the Holy Spirit as a person, um, the Holy is God himself in spirit, come to live inside and empower believers. And as believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're expected to be changed. In fact, walking empowered by the Holy Spirit is the only way to live the Christian life. In Romans 8.11, Paul promises us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul promises that the Holy Spirit, as he dwells in us, will give us the transforming power to live the life that Jesus has called us to. Elsewhere, we're promised um, that, the, that as the Spirit works um, his way in our lives, that he will birth fruit in us. Um, and these are not kind of mangoes or apples, um, but these are the fruit of the Spirit. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These aren't um, characteristics that we're kind of urged to summon up in our own strength, but this is the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that as we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, as we surrender to him, um, we're changed. Some of that will happen kind of uh, in the moment. Some of that we'll see the gifts of the Holy Spirit released. We'll see people um, healed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And those are examples where we'll see manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Other times the Holy Spirit will work in our lives on a longer-term basis and we'll see sanctification. We'll see ourselves being changed to become more like Jesus and to live the life that he's called us to. Um, 
So as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we receive a new power to live the Christian life. We see this fruit being birthed in us, our character changing, becoming more like Jesus. And as we see in this passage, boldness and courage to be a witness. That's another implication of the Holy Spirit being, being in our lives, filling us again, is we experience boldness and courage to be witnesses for him. And that's, that's essentially what you see in the book of Acts time and again. These disciples who, bear in mind, remember back in, back in the end of the Gospels, these disciples are, are worried. Peter denies Jesus three times. But you see a total transformation um, in them. And I think that transformation is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives as they experience this power. Um, and, you know, as I've talked about that, I won't, I won't go into them now, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will manifest himself in different ways as we healing or prophecy. And, you know, I don't have time to, to look into those. Um, but it's not an overstatement to say that we can't live the Christian life in our own strength, but need the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So then how do we experience this change? How do we access um, this power in our lives? And as we've seen in this prayer, the disciples experience this power when they pray and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, I see this as a theme throughout the book of Acts. The disciples pray and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is not um, a kind of only a one-time thing that happens to the disciples um, as they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but it's something that is a a kind of continuing uh, part of our lives. In fact, in um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, uh, if you want you can turn to that, um, Paul gives the church in Ephesus an instruction. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that, when he says be filled with the Spirit, it's um, a kind of, I don't know quite the grammatical term, but like a present indicative, I think it might be what you meant to say. Um, but like it's an ongoing command in our lives, that it's not just something that happens once, but we're commanded to continue continue to be filled with the Spirit. And this gift, by the way, is um, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all Christians. And clearly, as, 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 uh, if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is the one who's brought that new birth in your life. Um, but, it's, but it's something that, and then we're called to continue to ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit and to, um, to live this out. Um, sometimes this will be accompanied by... Uh, manifestations of laughing or joy or, or things like that. And, that's, and people have talked about that. And I think sometimes that's, that's put people off from this. Um, but I, I think we, sh- we shouldn't kind of focus too much on those external manifestations, but rather on the fact that this is the power, Holy, the Holy Spirit uh, gives us the power to live the life that Jesus has called us to. Um, in Romans, one final thing that's uh, really exciting about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is uh, this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit reveals to us more of of who God is, and you can see that in in John's Gospel, but also he reveals God's love to us. That's certainly my experience, my day-to-day experience, as I ask God to fill me with his Holy Spirit, is I I often experience more a tangible sense of his love, of of a knowledge of, of, um, of his love for me. And, um, and a courage to go out and share him with the world. So, um, I think also the... Co- uh, yeah, I think I'll, I, won't, I won't go any more onto that. So if we want then to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what do we do? What, what, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, just a few things then. It's not, there's not any kind of uh, really... Um, not want to overhype this, but basically in the New Testament we see um, 
In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, Peter tells the crowd, we are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the first step in asking the Holy Spirit to fill you is just to, just to come before God and to repent of any known sin in your life, anything um, that, that you're aware of, not asking you to kind of spend loads of time being introspective, but just to ask him to, um, to bring anything to mind where you need to confess and repent of. Um, the second thing, intrinsic to the idea of being filled with the Spirit, is that we submit to God in everything. We ask the Holy Spirit to take control, to be Lord of our lives. Um, so that's really important, that we're just repenting, we're, we're submitting, we're saying, God, would you have control of my life? And then thirdly, most importantly, we come to Christ and we ask in faith to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a promise in John chapter 7, Verse, I think it's 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus welcomes us to come and ask to receive the the Holy Spirit. Um, And that's something just to be received by faith. Just to ask, uh, not to be afraid of. This is the same Spirit as Jesus. Um, And remember also that our Father knows um, to give good gifts to his children. And and this is um, his gift. He is our gift to us. Uh, He doesn't intend danger or harm. And this is something that I would encourage you to do on an ongoing basis. This is something as I spend time with God in the mornings, I read my Bible, when I, um, not saying I do that every morning, but, um, but I don't really get a false impression, but, but I ask Jesus to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And as I go throughout my day, and as I'm aware of things that, I, that come up when I've done things that aren't of Jesus, I'll just confess that moment by, oh, this is the aim anyway, confess that moment by moment and ask Jesus to fill me with his Holy Spirit. So this is something that I would encourage you to do on an ongoing basis. Now, there's different ways to respond to this. Um, after we've sung, you can just ask God yourself to fill you with his Holy Spirit. But after we've um, had some time of worship, anyone would like to come up and get prayed for to be filled with the Spirit or uh, for anything, if you want to pray for anything, then um, there'll be a few of us up the front to pray with you. So we see in this passage then two keys for living the life that Jesus has called us for. One, trusting God in his sovereignty and two, asking God to be filled with his Spirit. So as we turn away from fear and say, yes, you, you have in your hands um, control of my future. And as we ask Jesus to fill, him, fill us with his Holy Spirit, then we will be changed. And the implications are for every area of our lives. We see uh, in Acts, just at the end of the passage that we've looked at today, um, that actually being filled with the Spirit and surrendering to God this changed them so much that their community looked radically different to the community around them. They, um, they have things in common. They're sharing. There's generosity. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, because as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So there's, there's generosity in this, in this community. This community looks radically different. And I would posit that that's as a result of them being transformed by God himself in his Holy Spirit. So, um, of course, we need to continue then 
to hear this implication of this passage, to continue to take out the good news into the world. This, this command that Jesus gives them and the promise of his power is for the disciples, but it's also for us. This um, command to take this message that Jesus has come into the world, that he's calling people to follow him and to receive his forgiveness. Now, this so often feels impossible to us. The scale of the task ahead of us, the lots of our friends and family don't know Jesus, the, the people in the world who don't even have um, churches around them, who uh, know what, no kind of gospel witness going around them. So this, this task feels as impossible for us as it did for the disciples. And yet from this passage and the whole book of Acts, we have a huge hope that it is possible, that God can take a ragtag band of unschooled men and women, and some of you have even experienced schooling, so we're uh, slightly one step ahead. Um, That's being facetious, sorry. Um, God can take a ragtag band of unschooled men and women who trust in him and are filled with the Holy Spirit, and with them he can change the world. And this is not just a story of the past, but for the present. We are to, as if to write the next chapter in the book of Acts. Um, I found this really encouraging bit at the end of a, a commentary on the book of Acts by a guy called Phil Moore, who reads a church in, reads a church? leads a church in um, South London, Wimbledon. Um, We live in a world where the call to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth is as urgent as ever. Over 4,000 of the world's 10,000 major people groups are without any local church of their own. That's 2.75 billion people for whom Jesus died who have no hope-filled community in their midst to convince them that his gospel is true. And as for the 4 billion in the other 6,000 people groups, many of them are in countries like my own where over five times as many people watched the final of Britain's Got Talent on television than went to church that same weekend. The challenge of the Great Commission is as oversized for us as it ever, ever was for the 120. That's why Luke doesn't want you to put down his book, that's the book of Acts, with a sense of defeatism that our task is unattainable, nor with a sense of optimism that the task is achievable. He wants you to put down his book with a sense of heavenly realism that however impossible our task may be, it is not impossible when we are carried by our almighty God. He is the one who chose us from the beginning, who's entrusted us with his gospel, who fills us with his spirit, who's endowed us with his authority, who guides us with his satnav, and who carries us to victory through his son. It is, only ca- it is only carried by his power that we can write the conclusion of the book of Acts and with every day of the rest of our lives. In his arms, every single one of us can go, live like Jesus, pray, share, heal, plant churches, and proclaim the vital message that God's kingdom has come. Hudson Taylor once wrote that all God's giants, uh, Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, once, once wrote that all God's giants had been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Luke tells us that we are weak men and women, but that our God is with us and will never let us go. As we end the book of Acts, this is the book of the end of the country, this is very good news. After all, we are ordinary people, and he is our extraordinary God. So let's go from here then. Choosing to trust God with our futures, choosing not to fear other people because we worship a sovereign Lord, and asking him to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to be changed by him, and to go out into this world with this precious news and to continue to write the next chapter of the book of Acts.